So this is kind of a, an image of the son when he returns and what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. So in Revelation 20, verse 11, John gets this vision. It says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. So three main things that I want to cover today, three main points are this, is that he will come, he will judge, and it will be based on how we lived our lives. So let's begin with this truth of Christ's return. So I want you to turn over to Acts chapter 1, page 991. Page 991, Acts 1. So after Jesus' resurrection, Scripture tells us that he appeared over a 40-day period to about 500 different people. And then he, in the presence of his disciples, ascended into heaven. And so this is kind of picking up that story. We're going to start in verse 10. It says, They were looking intently up into the sky as he, Jesus, was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. The same Jesus will come back. So this truth and this declaration is just pounded into us throughout the New Testament. There are over 300 verses in the New Testament that talk about Jesus' coming back, his second coming. As we've said here before, over twice as many verses about his second coming and prophecies as there were about his first when he was born in Bethlehem. Twice as many verses about his coming again. So Jesus, even in his ministry, made his return very clear. In John chapter 14, this is what he said to his disciples. He said, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. So Jesus said, I will come back. He was like the original Schwarzenegger, right? I'll be back. So before we get too far into this discussion today, I do want to acknowledge something up front, and that is that every doctrinal statement that we've covered so far in the creed has all already happened. Everything that we've looked at up to this point has all been written in the past tense, Okay, so we've seen words like conceived, suffered, died, crucified, buried, descended, rose, ascended, seated. So what we're addressing today is a different challenge for us. Okay, this is a new thing here. It requires a different level of faith um, because we're saying that we believe in something that hasn't happened. So to say that we believe without the accompanying historical evidence to kind of open, you know, some book to and say, hey, we know that this happened, means that we 
might not fully understand how it's all going to happen, but that we have to have trust and faith in God, that he's delivered on his promises before, the things that he said he was going to do in the past tense, he delivered on. That gives us confidence to believe that he's going to do what he said he was going to do. He's going to be faithful to do it again. Jesus said he will come back. And so if we are a people of faith and we have to believe and live our life, like that's an imminent reality. This is going to happen. So are we living, So I'm sorry, so we are living in this in-between time in history. Okay, we are living in this time between his first coming and his second coming. All right? So far too many people, and I've talked about this before in some series we've done, far too many people spend way too much time thinking about the when is Jesus coming back, when scripture is extremely clear that nobody knows when he's coming back, and in fact says that he'll come back like a thief in the night when we least expect it. So it's better than instead spending our time just living in a state of readiness. Scripture says that no one knows the day. Okay, so Paul put it like this in Acts 17, 31. He said, for he, God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. So God's the only one that knows when this is going to happen. Since we don't know the when of his return, then today we're going to focus on the why and the who. Okay, so why is Jesus going to return to judge? And who is this judge? (laughs) That, that this, it's going to, uh, to judge us. So, we talked about he will come. So now we're going to shift into he will judge. And that's a loaded statement, isn't it? Like, what's the number one complaint that people have about Christians in our world? They're judgmental, right? But Jesus is coming back to judge, okay? So that's a tough pill for people to swallow. We don't like to hear that that we're all going to stand before Judge Jesus one day. And as I was studying for this message, I couldn't help but thinking about that old TV show, The People's Court, right? (laughs) Judge Wapner. And this this show came out in 1981, all right? So I was 12, and it was on in the afternoon, like at 3 or 4. So, like, I really had to be, like, desperate for, to not be doing anything to sit down and watch The People's Court. But what would happen is these kooky people would come in, and they would have, it was a small claims court reality show. So they would come and they would state their case, usually be a couple in, a, in a, you know, two 15-minute trials in a, in a 30-minute show. They would state their case. Judge Wapner would give a, a decision. And then he would walk out. And then this guy with amazing hair would do this post-game interview with these people. Okay, anybody remember that guy's name? Doug Llewellyn. Okay, Doug, of course Rob remembers it, right? Yes, the keeper of useless knowledge, Mr. Willoughby, right? So, yeah, so Doug Llewellyn would do the post-game interview. So if you're too young or if you were doing more important things with your life and you can't quite remember what it was like, I've got a little clip for you here today.
always had, you know, clever titles too, right? A cat named Scampy, a taste of Scampy. It's good stuff. So, yeah, Samantha, the dog. You go on to hear that this dog was a pit bull. So, Samantha, yeah, I don't know my... It's on. I was just not getting it. Check, check. There it is. All right, good. Okay. So th- there were some real characters on this show, as you can imagine, okay? Because um, you had to kind of like waive your right to a real trial to go on the people's court. So you know you're just trying to get some airtime. But what it did for me as a 12 or 13-year-old kid, honestly, was it made kind of court just kind of seem like a joke. I mean, it was like, ah, who goes to court? Just kooky people, right, on TV. So um, let me ask you this. How many people, how many of you here have actually been to court and had to stand before a judge? Okay. How many of you, when you stood before the judge, knew you were innocent? (laughs) Boy, man, that's rough. That's rough. I appreciate the honesty. Okay. So (laughs) that's why we got a church, people, right? Dang. I'm going to, it's a good thing I'm facing you and not preaching with my back to you every week. Um, So if you go to court, and you're standing before a judge, you know you're innocent, like that's a certain level of anxiety. You might be kind of nervous because you've never been to a court before. There's a lot of people in there maybe waiting on their turn. It's kind of an anxious place to be, even if you know you're innocent. And, and especially depending on the severity of the charges, you might know you're innocent, but if the charges are pretty heavy, it's like, wow, man, I hope they get this right, right? So there's a certain level of anxiety that comes with that. So how many of you have stood before a judge knowing you're guilty? Let's see the show of hands, okay? Yeah, I've been there with speeding tickets and, you know, murder here or there. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) So that's a totally different level of anxiety, right? Because you're like, man, I know I'm guilty, and really my, my destiny here is at the hands of this person that I can't control, and they're gonna decide something, and I'm gonna have to do it, whatever it is they say. That's the law, right? So there's a completely different... And obviously, depending on the severity of the charges as well. So here's what scripture says, guys. Hebrews 9.27 says this. Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. So every one of us will have our day in court, so to speak. And what's the crime that's going to be brought against us? So we, we stand before Judge Jesus one day. He's going to hit us all with the same crime. What is that crime going to be? What's he going to say our charges are? Anybody have an answer? Yeah, Justin. Okay, yeah, exchanging the glory of God with our sin. That we, we love sin more than we loved him, right? We're all going to be hit with that same crime. Paul says like this, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the grittier version of that statement we can find in Romans 3, 10 through 18, Paul says this. He says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Okay, so he's talking about humanity. 
And that's a pretty rough assessment of our state. I think Paul sums it up best in this one verse. Romans one twenty one says this, For although they knew God or knew of God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. And we're all guilty of crimes against our creator and against our fellow man, every one of us. So Jesus is coming back to judge, and nobody will escape that event. So let's turn for a second to what's the nature of the judge. So when lawyers are preparing for a trial, I've watched a lot of TV, so I know this, all right? They want to know something about the nature of the judge. They're going to try the case before, right? They want to know, is this guy lenient? Is this guy strict? You know, back in the day, they'd say, is he a hanging judge? You know, is he prone to just hang people? Okay, so they're, they're going to know the judge. So what do we know about the judge that we're going to stand before one day? Well, the first thing that jumps out to me <clears throat> was a, is a statement um, that we made, we spent a whole semester kind of talking about this a couple of years ago. Um, in the book of John, it says that, that Jesus came into this world full of grace and truth, right? That he was the perfect balance of those two things. So we know that our judge is perfectly balanced with grace and truth. And unlike human judges who are imperfect, we'll, we will stand before a perfectly just and sinless Savior, so I want you to think about that. The Savior who created each one of us is going to look into the eyes of, of all of us, the people that he created, people that he laid his life down for. He's going to look each one of us in the eye. Somebody, not a stranger, like, like we might be coming off the street and then going down into Buchanan County Courthouse so maybe we don't know the judge we're standing before. This is a judge that knows everything about us intimately. And there's really kind of two sides to that coin. What do you think I mean by that? What are the two sides to the coin that this judge is going to know everything about us and that he gave his life for us? What's the good and the bad of that? Yeah, Randy. Okay. Yeah, he's going to know the inner thoughts of my heart. What's the potential good side of that? What if, boy, I'm really having to like spoon feed you here. Okay. Yes, Robert. Good. Okay, we know that the, that the, the determination or the judgment will be right, <laughs> whether we like it or not. So, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, Devin. Yeah. Yeah, so he, he, everything's going to be exposed and laid bare, okay? So here's, here's, here's what I was thinking with, with what I was saying. You guys all had fine answers. Here's, here's where my mind was going, was that as Jesus stands and looks at us, <clears throat> right, the, the two sides of the coin for me in this was this, like some, some of the people standing for him are going to be people that surrendered their life to him. 
And there's going to be this unbelievable grace poured out towards them, right? That he's going to know, yeah, you did all of this stuff, (laughs) but you believed in who I was. You were pursuing me and and running after me, and and you believed in me, and your actions, you know, um, at least your desire was to please me, to do what's right. The flip side of that coin is that there are going to be some people standing before him that he knows he created that he gave his life for, that were just indifferent or maybe flat out rejected him. And he's going to have to be honest with them, right? So it's not just some this indifferent judge you're going to be able to pull the wool over on. <laughs> this guy knows exactly how you lived your life. So one thing I know for sure is this. Psalm 96, 13 says this. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So we know that he'll be righteous. We know that he'll be faithful. Guys, we have a Savior who, when he arrived on the outskirts of Jerusalem that last week of his life, And he looked out over the crowd. The crowd in Jerusalem, the streets were swelling because it was the season of Passover, this religious festival where Jews from all over the empire, Roman Empire, were descending on Jerusalem. So literally millions of people in the streets. And he looked out over that crowd, some of whom he knew, many of whom were going to be praising him that day as he rode into town. And later on on Friday, we're going to be cursing and shouting, crucify him. And scripture tells us that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. His heart was broken for people that weren't going to receive his message because of the hardness of their hearts. And I think it's important for us all to understand that Jesus takes no pleasure in sending anyone to hell. He worked far too hard to create a way for people to not go. So Jesus will come. He will come to judge. And finally, it will be based on how we live our life. We already hit on that point at the beginning in Revelation 20. We talked about that. But there are many other stories and verses that back this truth up. So here's just a couple of examples that Paul wrote in in letters to the Corinthians. We could put that slide up. So 1 Corinthians 4, he says this, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. And then 2 Corinthians 5 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And of course, you know, one of the the parables that comes to mind for me was one we looked at right before Easter. We talked about the parable of the sheep and the goats, right? Where Jesus says, I'm going to separate people out. And, and the qualifying factor for who went to the right and who went to the left, who came into his presence and who didn't, was how we treat the vulnerable, the orphan, the widow, the stranger. How we treated them is going to determine our eternal destiny. 
Another way Jesus put it in scripture, he says a tree will be known by its fruit. It's not just what we say we believe, but what is the fruit that we're producing? You know, a tree can stand there all day and say, I believe I'm an apple tree. If you don't make apples, I don't care what you say you are, right? You got to make apples to be an apple tree. The same thing with us. We can say that we're a Christian, but if we're not producing Christ-like qualities, then we're not. And so we have to look at ourselves and say, are we producing, am I producing good fruit? Because my life is aligned with what I say I believe about God and then what I do. And all this gets back around to the central question that we've been asking at the end of every message in this series. If we say we believe that Jesus will come back to judge the living and the dead, then what should my life look like as a result of that? The first thing that comes to mind for me is that we have to have a healthy respect for our judge. So Proverbs 9.10 says this, and it says it in lots of different verses as well. This is just one place that it says it. But it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So do we have a sense of who it is we're going to stand before one day? It's not going to be Judge Wapner or Judge Judy. We're going to stand before a holy, righteous, almighty, all-knowing God who has the power of eternal destiny in his hands. Philippians 2.12, Paul writes that we should continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. What does he mean? He means that we ought to be humble. We ought to be respectful because we acknowledge the position of our Savior. Our Savior is seated at the right hand of God on his glorious throne. And so what should that mean practically? If we have a proper perspective for who it is, a a proper fear for the position and the authority of God, practically it means that we ought to be a repentant people. And to repent means to change. The people who take seriously their sin and disobedience. We have to be mindful to strive uh, and mindful of the tremendous cost of our forgiveness. We can't allow ourselves, we can't allow others around us to be indifferent or to be flippant about their sin. A devotional that I read recently, and I've shared this with some people, said this. We can't confess what we haven't grieved. We can't confess what we haven't grieved. There's two things that come to mind for me when I say that. One is that a lot of people just don't even confess their sin. They kind of skip over that in their prayer time. Or if we do confess it, we don't really grieve it. We might say, oh yeah, I wasn't very nice, or I was kind of selfish, or I was kind of prideful. But to grieve that sin is something much different. Different. I just looked up the word grief this morning. It says this, sharp sorrow, painful regret. I don't know that I allow myself to go there. 
Honestly, when I confess my sin, just to be honest with you guys, I'm just pretty easy on myself. (laughs) I let myself off the hook pretty easily. So that was super convicting for me to read. So in addition to having a healthy respect for God, because we know Jesus is coming to judge, we ought to also care deeply for and reach out to those that are lost, whose hearts are hardened towards him. If we believe the seriousness of the consequences of unrepentant sin, then we shouldn't be indifferent about the plight of people around us. I want to just put up a couple questions on the screen here for us to think about a little bit this morning. You can take a picture of them, dwell on them at home. Do we really believe that Jesus is coming back to judge each one of us based on how we are living our lives? And then if we answer yes to that question, then what needs to change about how we're living? See, guys, there's, the goal of the Christian life is to be transformed. And so when we come to church every week, there's really a couple things going on that should be going on. For one, we should be acknowledging who God is, right, and worshiping him and giving him the praise and glory due his name because of what he's done for us. Secondly, we ought to be in this place where we anticipate that he's going to want to change us, that that's his goal, Okay. The scripture says very clearly that that he's going to continue to make us into the image of Christ all the way up until the day we die. It's it's an eternal process called sanctification. So if you've been coming now, we're on week eight, and we've been hearing messages week after week about different aspects or doctrines of the Christian faith, and we've been talking about, hey, if you say you believe that, then what should your life look like? And hopefully along the way, like me, you guys have been picking up on my life doesn't always look like I really believe that. I might say it with my mouth, but my life doesn't really, I'm not living that out. So then, then the next question becomes, okay, something beyond awareness is what am I doing to change? Am I allowing that to be transformed? Am I any different now on July 7th than I was when we had the first sermon on May whatever that was? Am I any different? Because, and you guys know this, right? Change is an intentional process. So if I hear something today in this message, like I'm just going to share with you in a second of some things that like, I know I need to do differently, when I walk out of here today, I've got to make some decisions about when I wake up tomorrow, what am I going to do to be different? Because I'm old. I just turned 50 while I was gone from you, okay? And I'm setting my ways. And if I'm going to change, it's going to be painful. And I've got to let somebody else know that's a friend of mine, hey, I'm going to try to change in this area. Would you help me? Would you pray for that? Would you keep me accountable to that? Okay? So there's a process there. Change just doesn't happen by accident. You're not going to mysteriously become more like Jesus, It's going to happen because of his work in you combined with you moving towards him, (laughs) right? He meets us on the way as we're changing. What is God saying to you 
and what are you doing about it? Those are questions we have to take seriously. And I can tell you for myself that I know one thing I need to do, I just shared with you, is I need to take time to grieve my sin more deeply, which means that I've probably got to slow down a little bit. I've got to dwell on my actions and my behaviors and my thoughts a little bit more and say, man, God, not only am I sorry for that, but where did that come from? Like, why was I selfish or prideful or hurtful in what I said? What's going on in me that made me do that? What am I seeking that's not you? (laughs) And I got to sit in that junk a little bit more because why? Because it makes me appreciate the forgiveness more. I've got to come to terms with who I am so that I can appreciate who God's made me to be. Secondly, I need to be more brokenhearted for those whose hearts are far away from God. If God is really going to come and judge everyone, and it's going to be based on how they live their lives, people that don't know Jesus, that ought to really upset me. That ought to do something in me that says, man, I I need to be more intentional (laughs) about praying for the lost people in my life, about sharing the good news of God when I have the opportunity. I need to pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ who are in countries that are hostile to the gospel more. I need to be more generous to financially support efforts to spread the gospel in hard-to-reach countries. Am I doing some of those things? Yeah, but not enough. And guys, when you think about what we're not doing, okay, here's the truth. (laughs) What we're not doing is a reflection on the depth of how much I really believe in the impending judgment of Christ. It's a reflection on the depth of how much I really believe the impending judgment of Christ. If I really believe that he's coming back and he's going to judge everyone and it is just, his judgment is going to be just and righteous, that ought to do something to me. That ought to burden my heart for those that don't know him more than it does. Too often I'm just a lot more concerned about myself and I'm a lot more concerned about my own comfort than I am about the fact that there's some people that I know that are not going to possibly end up with him forever. Because here's also the truth, is that somebody chased after me. Somebody prayed for me when I was lost. Somebody gave money to churches and Young Life Ministries to support people who showed me Jesus. And I wouldn't be here today if not for Christians who really believed that Bob Miller's soul was in jeopardy. So make no mistake, this all gets back to the two greatest commands. Somebody asked Jesus, what are, the, what are the, the greatest commands? And Jesus said, I could sum it up in two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, because he is coming. And love your neighbor as yourself, because he's coming to judge based on how we've lived. So as we take communion today, in the spirit of kind of what we were talking about a little bit this morning, Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 11, 28, about taking communion. He said that everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. 
we ought to examine ourselves. We ought to maybe take a moment to grieve some things. And I know sometimes it's hard to maybe get there in, in a few minutes before we take communion. That's why it should be a natural part of our life and not this thing we try to cram in right before we take communion on Sunday morning. It should be a regular practice, a part of, of our relationship with him, of expressing true sorrow, not only for the things we've done, but also for the things that we should be doing that we aren't, <laughs> for our indifference towards some things that, that we really should care about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you, God, that just for your faithfulness, Lord, that you, you have done the things that you said you were going to do. You said you were going to come in flesh and, and take on the sins of this world and set us free from, from chains and darkness and slavery to sin, and you did it. You said you were going to raise from the dead, and you did. And Lord, now you said that you're coming back, and you will. And when you come back, you say that you're going to judge, and you'll do that as well. And God is... Um, you know, that, that should cause some, <laughs> some trepidation in our souls a little bit of the seriousness of that because you're not just, you know, maybe <laughs> giving us a ticket where we have to pay a fine or even spend this amount of time in jail. We're talking about forever. And so, God, while we, we might have some security because we, we have a relationship with you and your Holy Spirit is in us and we kind of know where our eternal destinies are, so many people that we know or that we're around don't know that. Or they do, and it's, it's, it's not a pretty place. And that ought to wreck us a little bit. It ought to disturb us more than it does. And so, God, when we say that we believe Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead, our life ought to look like something as a result of that information. And so, God, change in us whatever it is that you need to change. Transform us, God. We give you this time right now to come before you, to quiet our hearts before we take communion. Pray that you would speak to us and that you would hear our confession today.